Good morning, church. As always, it's an amazing privilege to yeah, just bring the Word of God uh, to you. Uh, the lesson this morning is a particularly challenging one uh, to teach as well as to understand. Uh, but I am really super excited about just sharing with you what, what I've been learning recently about this critically important subject. But before we get into that, um, have you ever missed an appointment, a really important appointment or an event that has had consequences? Think about that. You know, I was thinking about this for myself and I remember a time when I was traveling extensively. I was flying to my head office in Pretoria uh, almost every week. And about four or five years ago, uh, I was relaxing at OR Tambo in one of the business lounges as I usually did if I had enough time. And I was waiting to board my flight. It was the last flight in those days. It was the 1815 flight, quarter past six BA flight, BA number 6239. And that flight always boarded at gate B3. It's just the way it was. I was so used to hearing the boarding call for that flight and then a reference to boarding at B3. This particular day I was, uh, I was particularly engaged and busy checking my emails. I was charging my phone. I was charging my laptop. Um, I had different documents on the table in the lounge that I was working through. And I was kind of listening with one ear to the announcements. You know, I heard some announcements, but I didn't hear boarding gate B3, sort of linked to any BA flight number that I was familiar with. So I carried on working. I glanced at my watch and it was like 10 to 6. I thought, ah, oh, that's not a problem. Uh, this flight does occasionally board late. And I carried on working. But then there was a particular, particularly urgent announcement, you know, that was uh, announced in the, uh, in the lounge as well as throughout the airport. And it went like this. This is an urgent and final boarding call for passing, passenger trollop who is still delaying BA flight 6239 to Port Elizabeth. You know, make your way urgently to boarding gate E1. I thought, oh my goodness, how could this happen? We always board, you know, at gate D3. Well, you can imagine the panic I was in. Uh, I had to get all of my equipment together, my files, shove them in my, my bag. Some of the stuff fell out of my bag. I was cleaning it up off the floor, trying to zip it up as I was running through the lounge, down the flight of stairs. To the right is boarding gate D3. It normally takes me like 30 seconds to get there. But the E boarding gates are in the basement of the airport. So there were two long flights of stairs that I needed to, to go down. And of course, everybody was walking so slowly. I mean, really. I mean, who dawdles in an airport? You know, so I kind of had to try to politely bustle my way through, you know, the crowds. Excuse me, madam. Excuse me, sir. I got down to the boarding level E, ran as fast as I could to E1, but as I was approaching, I saw the last bus depart with a few passengers on and the ladies closed the glass door. I came to them, I said, please, you know, ma'am, name's Trollope, so sorry I'm late. Uh, can I get on the flight? And they said, sorry, sir. The boarding gates are closed. 
Uh, we warned you twice. Now, I can't remember hearing the first warning, but amen. Point is, it was my fault. I just wasn't ready. I wasn't alert. I wasn't listening properly. Now, it wasn't too serious a mistake because I managed to uh, get a taxi to a convenient and reasonably cheap uh, guest house close by. And I got myself on the early flight the next morning to Port Elizabeth. So the consequences weren't that great. But you know, there are some events that if we do miss and are not prepared for, have pretty serious consequences. I mean, single brothers, imagine, imagine if you are not prepared for your wedding. Okay, let's say that, you know, you wake up that morning sort of half asleep and you imagine you kind of you remember that the wedding starts at two in the afternoon you've got lots of time but what you forget is that quite recently you know you and your wife and everybody else organizing the wedding moved it to a morning wedding imagine getting that phone call from your you know the um your your, your grooms you know your best men you know saying hey buddy where are you you know we're waiting for you in the church your wife is just about to arrive that's a nightmare as well, right? And that's an important event not to miss your wedding. Or imagine if you're working at a company and you are to receive a very special visit from President Ramaphosa. President Ramaphosa is visiting different companies to find out you know, what you're doing. And you are part of the receiving committee and you have also been asked to make a presentation on your department. Imagine you forget the date. Imagine you're sitting in your office and one of your colleagues you know, rushes to the door and says, where are you? You know, your item on the agenda is coming up in a minute's time. You need to make a presentation to the president. That would be a tough one as well, hey. But you know, these sort of, you know, events that we miss, you know, through forgetting or just not being alert, uh, that happen to us, they happen to all of us, maybe not as serious as the ones I've just described, but we can recover from them. You know, invariably, there's, there's grace, there's a second chance. Yeah, some of the mistakes we make and things we forget might have or might be career limiting. Okay, we might need to really work hard on our relationship with our fiance. But more often than not, we can recover. We get second chances, whether it's in our existing company or relationship or a different company or relationship. We get second chances. But there is one event. There is... One appointment sometime in the future, we don't know the date, but there is this one event that we get only one chance to be ready for. And if we are not ready and alert for this event, then there are dire consequences. There are eternal consequences. And I'm speaking, of course, about the second coming of Jesus, the return of the King. And that's what we'll be talking about today. But let, let me give you some kind of a spoiler alert up front. Not your kind of typical spoiler alert. Let me tell you what, where we are not going with this lesson. I am not going to describe in detail exactly what this will look like when Jesus returns. I'm not going to suggest that we know when this will happen, even vaguely know when it will happen. I'm not going to go into that detail simply because I can't. You know, God has so designed it, He has decided, He has determined that there are some things we should not know in detail. 
and the return of the king is one of those events. There simply is not enough detail in the various passages in the Bible about this event for us to know exactly what it will look like, what we can expect. Um, N.T. Wright puts it this way. He describes eschatology, which is a fancy word really just for the, the study of the end times, you know, really studying out the return of Jesus. He said it is like driving through a village, looking for a place, using, um, using written instructions, you know, before the time of GPS. In other words, you are told, you know, to go down Smith Street, proceed for so long, you know, turn left into such and such a street, and then right into this street and left into that one. And he said it is like that, but in a very, very thick mist. You know, so you'll drive along very slowly and carefully. You'll be looking left and right for, for street signs. You'll see different shapes. And as you get close to a street sign, you'll see the name of it. And you'll need to continue like that until you get to your journey. It is like looking for a destination in a heavy mist when we try to figure out what the second, com second coming of Jesus uh, will look like. Paul puts it this way, writing to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 9 to 10, and then I'll skip down to 12 to 13. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. For now we see indistinctly, as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Okay, so what Paul is saying here is something similar to the, uh, the illustration of N.T. Wright. He says that in this age, we cannot know things fully. We cannot understand things fully. We cannot see things clearly. And it is only when the perfect come, perfect comes, referring to the return of the perfect one, Jesus, only when perfection comes, will we know in full, will we be able to see and understand everything fully. And then he uses the example of looking into a mirror. Now, Paul always connected with his audience, you know, using illustrations that they were familiar with and examples. Corinth was a leading city in the manufacture of mirrors. They produced bronze mirrors. Now, even though in those days they were high-quality mirrors, they were nowhere near as good as our current mirrors, just because of the nature of the material that they used. You could see your reflection, but you couldn't see it very clearly. So Paul was saying that, you know, trying to, to figure out what the second coming, what the return of the king uh, will look like, trying to understand what the age to come will look like, is like looking in an imperfect mirror. We see, but we don't see clearly. If Paul had to live nowadays and give us advice, I would think that he might use the example of a photograph, because our mirrors are actually pretty good. He might say, you know, that you know, trying to anticipate the second coming of the king and what the age to come is going to look like and what life's going to be like in that age is like looking at a photograph. Now, a photograph, I don't know about you, but I've I love photography and especially outdoor photography. 
And on a few occasions, I remember hiking with Nolene, you know, up the mountains in Drakensberg, and there's this magnificent view before me. And I'll take a photograph of at different angles, and I think, oh, that's awesome, what a great photo. But when I look at the photograph afterwards, I'm disappointed. Firstly, it's like flat, it's one-dimensional, you just don't get the sense of the, you know, the size. And there isn't a, a breeze, you know, rustling in the trees. Um, there isn't the smell of the flowers. And there isn't the, the feeling of, of, of the close relationship that I'm feeling with Nolene when we're up on that mountaintop, just doing something together. The connection with, with, with my wife just isn't captured in the photo. You know, so trying to understand the age to come and the return of Jesus is like a photograph. It is one-dimensional and it really doesn't capture enough. It actually captures very little about what this will, what this will be like. Furthermore, our understanding of the end times is also restricted by the type of literature that is more often than not used by the authors of the Bible to describe it. Apocalyptic literature is by its nature full of imagery and symbols. You know, it is colorful, it is cosmic. There are lots of metaphors involved. And unless we hear those words and understand the images and symbols the way the original audience did, we can totally miss the point. In fact, we can jump to conclusions that the Bible authors inspired by God uh, did not have in mind. Okay? So we are limited in our understanding of the return of the king and the age to come that he will herald in, firstly, by the fact that there are just some things we, we are not able to understand. Right? It is just too complex a thing for us to grasp. And also, uh, we often misread the scriptures, not understanding the context and not understanding the literature genre, the type of literature and writing that it is presented in. Okay, so that is by way of quite a long introduction. But let's get stuck into more scriptures. Let's look at what Jesus himself says about his return. And I'm going to read from John 14, verse 1 to 3. I'm kind of going to use the NLT for some of these passages because at least the language is relatively simple and in a way kind of simplifies a very complex picture. Okay, so I love the NLT as well, so we'll be using NLT quite a lot. Now Jesus here is speaking to his disciples. It's a long conversation he's having with them shortly before his arrest and his crucifixion. Verse 1. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's house. In my father's home, if this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Now, this reference to the father's home, the father's house, clearly would have been heard by the Jewish disciples here as a reference to the temple. Now, this is a very important point. You see, the temple represented the coming together, the intersection between heaven and earth. The temple was the one place on earth where, where God dwelled. Okay, And it was a very conf confined, restricted place. 
In the Holy of, the Holy of Holies was small and to get into the full presence of God required uh, lots of sacrifices and preparation. Only the, uh, the chief priest could actually enter into this overlap between heaven and earth. What Jesus is saying that implied in this is that the temple will be replaced by something much, much bigger. There's a new world order coming. Everybody will be welcomed. There'll be many rooms in this new age, this new place, this new dimension that will be the new heaven and the new earth. You see, it's important, and this point has been made in the series um, previously, is that heaven is not a physical place up there somewhere. Now, heaven is not kind of a unique planet somewhere in the universe where Jesus has gone. And at the right time, he will, he will travel you know, through space and arrive back on earth. Um, heaven is a dimension. It is a realm that is close by. We see and experience things in three dimensions. Heaven is kind of a, it's a spiritual realm that is waiting to break in. That is a, a fourth dimension. It's an additional dimension. And at this time, we are not fully exposed to that. We do not fully experience, uh, you know, heaven, the place of God's full reign and rule. We pray, as we heard last week, we pray that God's kingdom will come and that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will will come fully. God's will will be done fully, sorry. And his kingdom will come fully when Jesus returns. And then heaven and earth will, will merge together. This, this dimension that is a parallel dimension and realm to us will, will combine with what we know and what we see. It's hard to understand, isn't it? You can understand why God didn't try to explain this in a lot of detail. Now, but sadly, many people, maybe even some of us here, still think about heaven as a place out there somewhere. And that Jesus is going to come and he's going to take us to this wonderful place. We're going to look at a couple of passages just now, uh, which are misinterpreted and misunderstood and misread in that way. Okay, so we know that Jesus will return to be with his true followers. We also know for certain that the return of the king will be associated with judgment. There are many passages about this. I'm just going to read 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. We don't know exactly what this judgment will look like. Once again, the apocalyptic language is exaggerated and speaks about the worm that will never die and be thrown into the lake of sulfur. Whether that practically is what's going to happen, I doubt, but it certainly is a picture of a place and an existence. Or more likely, it is a picture of just our lives being blotted out completely where we have no relationship at all with God. But that's the topic of another lesson, right? Trying to understand hell. My point I want to make is that there will be a judgment. You know, Jesus will sift us. You know, those who have pleased him, who have lived a life of obedience, a life of faith, a life of allegiance to him, continuing the work that he has given us. You know, those of us who, who are controlled by, by love, you know, 
It is love that will remain, says Paul. You know, those of us who live according to the values of the age to come and please our king will stand through the judgment and we will live with him for eternity. You know, those who are not ready for the judgment, those who have not taken the words of God seriously, those of us who have rebelled, anybody who has rebelled against Jesus, uh, the ones that he will find evil, uh, will be separated from God completely and will not live uh, for eternity with him and all the other Christians and disciples. So we know that Jesus will return. We know that it will involve judgment. What we don't know is exactly what that looks like. And we also do not know when exactly that will happen. You know, as Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, verse 36, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, except the Father only. You know, it's interesting that it's, it appears that Jesus knows everything that the Father knows. And he, he did the complete will of the Father. He and the Father are one with the Spirit. Yet there is one thing that only the Father knows, that Jesus and his Spirit do not know. And that apparently is the time of the return of the King, when Jesus will return exactly. Let's look at a, a couple of passages of scripture that do tell us something about the return of the king uh, without going into all the detail that we would love to know. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17 For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. First the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. Now, this passage of scripture has been used, um, misused really, to come up with the rapture theory. The rapture theory is uh, younger than 200 years old, which is the first problem, right? And what, according to this doctrine, that when Jesus returns, you know, his true believers, his followers will somehow levitate above the ground, meet him in the clouds and be whisked off to a safe place while the evil earth is dealt with. And there are various, uh, you know, shades of that doctrine and some details that people don't fully agree on. But let me just leave it there. OK, this is the basis for the rapture doctrine. But this is not at all what Paul is writing about. Firstly, we need to understand the purpose for the letter and this passage in particular. Paul wrote this to comfort the Christians in Thessalonica. This seemed to have been an amazing church. They loved each other deeply and some of their brothers and sisters were dying before the return of Christ and they were concerned about them. They were mourning for them but they were also concerned about, you know, how's this going to work? We are alive, they dead, are we going to meet up again together, etc. So Paul assures them that, yes, you, we will all you know, be there when Jesus returns. We will be, all be there to welcome him. Um, in fact, the dead will rise first. Okay. And then we will meet with them and meet with Jesus. But the first verse here, which is a reference to uh, you know, Jesus coming down from heaven with a commanding shout, and with the, with the divine voice and a loud trumpet call, 
would have reminded them of something in their history. What do you think that was? Yeah, Moses, right? Moses went up a mountain to be with God. There was much noise and palaver around this event. It was a big thing, man. You know, God spoke and Moses spent some time with God. And then Moses descended. He came down to the people. Moses is a, a powerful type, an archi, sorry, a type, a prefigure of Christ. So Paul is simply uh, using, you know, Moses coming back to the people, down to the people, using that to explain how Jesus, after being with the Father for a while, will come back. I don't think we need to take the descending, literally. I don't think, you know, we're going to have to look up into the sky and see Jesus coming down from the sky. Elsewhere, in fact, Paul refers to the appearing of Jesus. For example, in Colossians 3 verse 4, the appearing of Jesus is much more in line with the biblical understanding of heaven, that it is kind of a parallel realm and dimension that we can't see yet. But when heaven and earth come together, you know, that Jesus will then appear rather than physically descend from anywhere. Okay, but what about this uh, being caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord? Thessalonica was a Roman colony, and the audience of this letter would certainly have understood what Paul was saying here. You see, in those days, if the emperor, if their king, uh, planned a visit to their city, the inhabitants would have been extremely excited, and they would have planned uh, to go out you know, of the city and to meet the emperor outside of the city gates and then to accompany him back into their city. This is a reference to joyfully and excitedly meeting the king, right? So when Jesus comes again, Paul has this picture, this expectation, you know, that his true followers are going to be so excited to, to meet him. And then together, you know, we will enter into the new heaven and the new earth, this, this restored city, so to speak. So we can see then from this passage, that this is not at all about a rapture to, you know, help us to escape from the earth and then Jesus somehow coming back in future with us, right? The rapture theory uh, is, is a false doctrine. I don't know how else to put it. Okay, so we learn something from this passage of Scripture. We learn that when Jesus returns, that it is going to be the return of a king, you know, that we will welcome him joyfully and that somehow we will accompany him and he will accompany us into the new city that is the new heaven and the new earth and no one's going to be disadvantaged you know if you died back in you know 30 AD or 40 AD or if you die the day before Jesus returns you know everybody will be treated the same our resurrected bodies you know will will meet him uh, together with those of us who might still be alive passage of scripture that gives a false uh, picture of the return of the king uh, if it's not read properly. I'm referring to a passage in 2 Peter 3. Let me start reading from verse 3. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, Everything has remained the same since the world was first created. 
Now, Peter is writing this letter to address false teachers in the church. In particular, false teachers who are saying, oh, you know, God is not faithful, you know, Jesus is not going to come again. I mean, look, it's been decades, you know, since Jesus returned to the Father. Uh, so they were basically teaching the people just to go back to their old ways. And they were very corrupt, these false teachers. You know, and I don't think they could live up to the standards, so they were encouraging everyone else to just go back to the way we were living. Okay, so this is obviously a serious uh, uh, heresy uh, that, Paul, that Peter sorry, needs to address. You know, this, I was just thinking, that this sounds like quite a few people I've met over the years. And perhaps I was like this as well. I can't remember this in particular, but I certainly was a scoffer. I didn't believe everything that the Bible said. Now, but I, I've met some people over the years who, when you discuss the gospel and the resurrection and the second coming of Jesus, it's like a veil goes over their eyes. Now, you can see that they just don't believe this. It seems too uh, ridiculously different from their normal lives to kind of expect and to believe that, you know, Jesus will come again and he will totally restore, you know, the earth and create a new heaven and a new earth. It just seems impossible to them. Um, you know, so we can understand where this comes from. It is tempting, you know, when every day is exactly the same, nothing changes, that we can so easily assume that tomorrow is going to be the same as yesterday and the same as today. Let's read from verse 5. They, delib they deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command, and he brought the earth up from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. Now, very importantly, you know, when we read the, the passages that follow, the verses that follow, Peter here is making a comparison with the ark. You know, he's saying that God destroyed the earth through the flood. You know, he cleansed the earth. And we know that God promised that he would never destroy the earth with water again. What Peter here is saying that there will be an event similar to the flood where God will cleanse the earth completely and those that are righteous will be saved. Um, so there is a comparison here between using fire to achieve the same things that God used water for, you know, the flood, to destroy evil and to cleanse the earth. Verse 8, But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends, a day is like a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. PDA is making the point that God sees time differently. I don't think we should literally say that exactly a thousand years uh, you know, for God is like one day to us. That's not the point. He's simply saying that God sees time very differently to what we do. God is patient. You know, God waits and waits and waits. God sees the big picture and he knows when the best time is to act. He also says that he does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Why is God so patient? Why is it taking so long for Jesus to return? Because there are still people who God wants to save, 
God wants as many people to repent as possible, to live with him for eternity before he sends Jesus. Think about that. That should give us a sense of urgency, right? To announce the kingdom, you know, to share our faith, to proclaim the gospel. You know, knowing that as we do so, that, that can actually hasten uh, the coming of Christ. We'll get to that in a moment though. Okay, so let's carry on in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire. And the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live, looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day he will set the heavens on fire, and the elements will melt away in the flames. Wow, now this certainly looks like the world's going to be destroyed, right? Uh, but let's look more closely. Remember that this is written in apocalyptic literature, which is very colorful, it's cosmic, it's a little bit over the top, and it, it uses symbols and metaphors uh, that we might not necessarily understand, as the original audience did. Firstly, it refers to the heavens uh, being... Heavens, the heavens passing away with a terrible noise. Now, if we understand that heaven is not a place up there somewhere, but, but a separate parallel dimension and realm to the world that we see, then heaven as it currently is will pass away. Earth as it currently is will pass away. And they will be replaced by a new heaven and a new earth. And maybe it will happen with a, a, a crack, a big sound when the fourth dimension, the dimension of heaven joins us. I don't know, but heaven as it currently is will pass away. And then he speaks about the elements um, disappearing in fire, the very elements. Now we might understand elements as you know physical structures, physical matter, but the word translated elements in the Bible is used in five other places, and in each case, elements refers to the governing principles of the world. Right? So the governing principles of the world will disappear. You know, Jesus is bringing in a fundamentally new world order that operates according to different principles. So that's what, it, what Peter means when he says the elements will disappear. Now, fire is all over this passage, isn't it? Fire and burning. Whether we take that literally or not, I don't know. I do know that fire is the most powerful symbol of God's judgment. We also know that Peter has just preceded this by re referring to the flood. So we cannot assume that the fire, whether it is literal or not, will destroy the earth. But the fire will perform the work that the waters of the flood did in the days of Noah. It will cleanse the earth of evil. Okay? It will cleanse the earth and what will be destroyed are the unrighteous people, the ungodly people. Verse 13, but we are looking forward to the new heavens and new earth he has promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. Wow. You know, as we, we know from, you know, the story of the Bible, God is not in the business of destroying his creation. You know, as, as God created, he, 
he said it was good, it was very good. You know, we read that in early chapters of, of Genesis. So God is not in the business of destroying, he is in the business of renewing and restoring all things. Hence the reference to the new heaven and the new earth. You know, that's a theme that's picked up in other books of the Bible too. So God is not planning to destroy the earth. I think we can say that with some certainty, right? God is in the, is in the business of renewing and restoring. The current earth as we know it will pass away. The current heaven as we know it will pass away. What we'll have instead of these two separate dimensions and realm is one renewed, restored, combined heaven and earth. Really going back to the times before sin separated us from God. You know, sin separated earth from heaven in the garden of Eden. Okay, so it is in a sense going back to the, the state that existed uh, before, before sin. You know, so, you know, just to conclude this lesson, we can't control or even influence the return of Christ. We have no idea what that will look like. We can't control it. We also don't know when he will return. That's totally out of our influence as well. But what we can control, what we can influence, is how we live now in anticipation of that event. And in this passage in 2 Peter that we have just read, um, I want to pull out four lessons for us. You know, how do we live now in anticipation of the second coming of Christ? In verse 13, Peter encourages us to live holy and godly lives. Live holy and godly lives, he says. We don't know when Jesus is going to return, but when he does, you know, make sure that he finds you living lives that are set apart to serve him holy and lives that are, you know, that, that are godly, lives that are spirit-led, lives that have embraced the purpose and the mission um, of God's people, of the king. Secondly, in verse 12, you know, Peter encourages us, he says, hurry the day along by proclaiming the good news, essentially, right? Hurry the day along. You know, we can, we can accelerate and bring closer the coming of Christ by sharing our faith, you know, by getting as many people to repent as possible, which is the will of God. Number three from verse 13, eagerly desire the return of Jesus and the new heaven and the new earth. Eagerly desire that. You know, do we do that enough, church? I know for me, man, I can get so bogged down in, you know, today's activities and events and things. And I do tend to kind of make the assumption that to, tomorrow is going to be the same as today. I don't spend enough time imagining and thinking about the new heaven and earth, the new heaven and the new earth, what that's going to be like just to be with Jesus, to live life to the full in a completely uninhibited way, to live this eternal life. You know, with God and with Jesus and the spirits there somehow and with my brothers and sisters. We should eagerly await the coming of Christ. And then number four from verse 14. We are encouraged to make every effort to be found blameless and at peace. Make every effort. You know, the life of discipleship is not a very passive, you know, kickback, graceful life where we only respond and we only act when we feel like it, 
when we get some kind of a fuzzy, nice, warm feeling to actually serve Jesus. You know, that's part of our modern culture, I think. But the early church was not like that, and the scriptures tell us nothing like that. Christianity is an act of faith. You know, to have faith and not works, not deeds, is useless, you know, James tells us. We need to make every effort, you know, to be found blameless and at peace. I want to add one point, point number five, from the words from the mouth of Jesus himself. I started this lesson with the words of Jesus. I want to end the lesson uh, listening to his words in Matthew 25, from verse 11. Um, This is a part of the parable that Jesus told. I don't have time to read the whole thing, but very briefly, it's a parable. It is a story um, of a bridegroom coming back to uh, a village to to take his wife, his future wife, his fiance, we would call it, you know, to come and, and collect her and take her to his, their home uh, where there would be a big wedding feast, a, a big wedding banquet. And in that culture, it was a surprise. They didn't know exactly when the bridegroom would return. And it is a parable of in the bride's home or future bride's home, there are attendant brides, maids called virgins, right? Ten young virgins would look after her and be prepared. Five of them are prepared. And the preparation is, the, in, is in the form of having lamps and enough oil to keep their lamps burning. The other five who are not as prepared, who are not prepared, you know, haven't thought about oil for their lamps. So the groom comes and the bridegrooms accompany him, the bridesmaids rather, uh, the virgins accompany the five who have their, their lamps. The other five rush off to try and make a plan to try and get oil somewhere. And this is what happens, right? They arrive at the wedding banquet, the five who were prepared. Verse 11, later the rest of the virgins also came and said, Master, Master, open up for us. But he replied, I assure you, I do not know you. Therefore, be alert because you don't know the day or the hour. Point number five, how do we live now in anticipation of the return of the king? Be alert. Church, we need to be alert. You know, Jesus could come tomorrow. You know, what, how would you spend your time now if Jesus had to come this time tomorrow? You know, are you alert? Are you ready for the return of the king? You know, I wasn't alert when I missed my flight, you know, four or five years ago. Um, but luckily, the consequences weren't too serious. You know, I could get back the next morning. I could make a plan. That was a bit embarrassing, cost me a bit of money, but you know what, it wasn't a big deal. Um, Even if you miss your wedding, young brothers, I mean, terrible thought. But you know what, that also, you can get over that, you can be forgiven, you can reset the date of the wedding, whatever. Um, Even if you miss, if you don't pitch up for an important presentation to the president when he visits your company, yeah, that's quite serious, it might be career limiting for a while, but you know what, You can get over that. You can still build your career. But there is one event that we have to be completely alert for because we get one chance to be ready. Only one chance. And that is the return of the king. Are you ready? You know, are you alert in waiting for King Jesus?